It is with architecture as with all other arts. Its principles are founded upon simple nature, and in the proceedings of this are clearly shown the rules of that. Let us consider man in his first origin without any other help, without other guide than the natural instinct of his wants. He wants an abiding place. Near to a gentle stream, he perceives a green turf, the growing verdure of which pleases his eye. Its tender down invites him. He approaches, and softly extended upon this enameled carpet, he thinks of nothing but to enjoy in peace the gifts of nature. Nothing he wants, he desires nothing. But presently, the sun's heat, which scorches him, obliges him to seek a shade. He perceives a neighboring wood, which offers him the coolness of its shades. He runs to hide himself in its thickets, and behold him there content. In meantime, a thousand vapors, raised by chance, meet one another, and gather themselves together. Thick clouds obscure the air. A frightful rain throws itself down as a torrent upon the delicious forest. The man, badly covered by the shade of these leaves, knows not how to defend himself from this invading moisture that penetrates on every part. A cave presents itself to his view. He slides into it, and finding himself dry, applauds his discovery. But new defects make him dislike his abode. He sees himself in darkness. He breathes an unhealthful air. He goes out of it resolved to supply by his industry the inattentions and neglects of nature. The man is willing to make himself an abode, which covers but not buries him. Some branches broken down in the forest are the proper materials for his design. He chooses four of the strongest, which he raises perpendicularly, and which he disposes into a square. Above, he, put, he puts four others across, and upon these he raises some that incline from both sides. This kind of roof is covered with leaves put together so that neither the sun nor the rain can penetrate therein, and now the man is lodged. And that's probably where architecture should have stopped. That little um, fable is uh, from the opening of um, the Abbe Marc-Antoine Logier's book, A Treatise on Architecture. And it's the origin of an idea uh, called the primitive hut, which we're looking at a picture of now. The primitive hut uh, is literally uh, the home of Homo primus, the first man. And it describes the idea of what the first building was and what its kind of nature might tell us about architecture and its rules and proprieties. Uh, Logier himself had a very, very clear idea of what the primitive hut should tell us about architecture and what it should be. And he deploys it really as a kind of weapon against all sorts of architectural excesses, uh, fripperies, things to be stripped away. It's an image of kind of simplicity uh, and kind of elegant necessity, which uh, for him, uh, an architecture just kind of emerging out of the Baroque needed to get back to. Strange, really, because he's a Jesuit, right? Uh, yeah, he was a Jesuit. They're into orthodoxy, right? Well, they're into orthodoxy, but they're also very much into uh, dialectic, aren't they? They're into argument. I think I think that might be might yeah. be getting to the point. Yes, good yeah. at uh, he's good, rich in argument. He's not in any sense an architect uh, or a designer of any kind. He is a pure critic or kind of architectural philosopher, as he's been described. Possibly the first architectural philosopher in the West. I don't know, but the rest of the world. Um, who isn't saying this is how one lot of people have done things or this is how you can build things, but from first principles, this is how buildings should be. It's a, I think Which is an unusual thing to do. Yeah. So the, the illustration of the primitive hut, if you're doing your kind of architectural survey course, it very often sort of emerges in your introduction to neoclassicism. So this kind you, of... Does this, is this... I have... I, you know, we say you get this architectural survey course. Yeah. I didn't do one. You didn't do one. But people do. Did you? Uh, sort of. No, not really. Mm. But I think people, I mean, I don't know. Someone, someone must be. I feel like people who are doing things properly. I think, I think that the proper authentic Europeans who do their descriptive geometry class probably yeah, yeah, do yeah. it as well. But this is, it's sort of, uh, when you see this illustration, you know, you're going into the age of enlightenment and... Big, yes, paired back classical It sort buildings. of feels like this is how you can 
Okay, so we've got like Rousseau. How do you do classical architecture with that? Because yeah. really, we probably in the Rousseau's world, the best thing would be to not have buildings. Yeah, well, yeah, or to somehow minimal ones. Yeah, they're, they're far too fixed in location. It, it, I guess is this that it's like in the beginning, things were right, and then something somehow imprinted on every building is some element of the right, mm. which is very much encrusted in a lot of the wrong. So there isn't there is an interesting context here, and there is like a definite. Um, there's a definite shift in the way in which uh, classical architecture and kind of classical antiquity are thought about at this moment. So like a few years previously, there's this famous debate, the quarrel of the ancients and the moderns, which happened in the Académie Française, I think, wasn't it? Or the, um, and it's basically uh, a debate on one side, who's, who's there? Like on one side, there's Charles Perrault, who wrote like Red Riding Hood and also, <laughs> maybe it's not Red Riding Hood, it's one of some of the fairy tales. The argument is basically like, might it not be that we've actually exceeded the people, you know, Rome and these, um, these examples that we draw from? And so it's sort of significant that going back to the, like, the, going back to the imaginary primitive hut as an exemplar, rather than just saying, well, this is what Vitruvius says, and this is what Roman buildings looked like, which is what uh, kind of earlier generations of classicists would have drawn on. That's a sort of significant thing, and that's putting down a marker that actually, uh, with yes. our own reason, we can kind of go a bit further. than. Loger is almost saying that Roman buildings are good because they're so old, they're nearer to the original. Yeah, and, and he's also very prepared to say, like, there are lots of good things about Vitruvius, but between you and me, actually, he's wrong about lots of things, and there are lots of limitations. To which he well. is. Sure. Uh, but the, um, um, I wanted to get something in early, which is that we're not just going to talk about this one. And I think it's the, the idea that, which has been used at various times, that sort of in the history of architecture and buildings as they are, is somehow imprinted the, the, the primal origin. Yeah. It's kind of in there. You either have to kind of release it more or maybe understand how it's been developed. Um, yeah. That's a useful way of thinking about buildings in general. It's not just that... Uh, I think t most of the people who are theorising this think that all or some yeah. buildings have been imprinted across deep time with some original sort of formative piece of architecture. Yeah, and it's also... It's and it's that's been a powerful idea for a whole series of people across a long period of time. Yeah, and not just in the form of the primitive hut, but, al but also in other ones that we're not going to talk about. So uh, or we might kind of talk around. But you can think about um, the idea of the orders emerging in stone out of like a timber original. It's, mm. a, a, you know, it's also an idea about a sort of original, um, a lost original, which gives kind of form and meaning to to a kind of later style. Um, and they're also, yeah. They're like also national folk architecture. Yeah. Somewhere deep in time, the German building or the British building yeah. somehow rose out of the murky forests. It's not just the idea of a kind of lineage of architecture, it's the idea of a like original deep ancestor. Yeah, and in, in creating a kind of imaginary history, it's a way to uh, subvert or partially overthrow the kind of authority of recent history the and there's an important thing about it which is that it has to be from a prehistoric time about which we can say about which nothing is falsifiable yeah so it can mean anything you want more or less you know this is one of these things where lots of people i think have probably seen the image which comes at the start of the second edition of this book so he did he did an edition which was anonymous and then i think he left the jesuits so that he could do an edition in his own name oh did he leave Leave them to do that. I think that's... I've read that in, on, like, an online encyclopedia. Oh. But I don't know... <laughs> I, I wonder if it's the one I'm thinking of. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what I've read. I know that he... Also, that he ended up as a Benedictine monk, so he, he did obviously... Uh, I don't know. He was moving between different things. So why is this building that we, that's on the next slide... We can see the slides in the future with telepathy. Why is this the best building? Oh, yeah. So we're looking at a picture of the Maison Carré, which is this um, Roman temple in... Uh, is this Nîmes? I think Nîmes, yeah. Uh, I like the, the juxtaposition with the Foster's one behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, every, all, the, all the photos of um, 
if you look for photos of this building online, they're all from kind of the opposite corner where you see like a kind of bland and inoffensive 19th century building behind it. If you look at it this way, which I think is for me is a, like a more pleasing angle, um, it's tainted by the presence of this foster building in the background. But, um, when we were there, I was like, oh, I want to see inside this, this the baseball carrier because I haven't seen inside of any standing temple. And there's nothing in there. It's just like a plasterboard box. Yeah, we should say something about the rest of the book. Like the book is this incredible work of like obsessive compulsive architectural criticism. And it's all Criticism in meaning in this incidence, not, uh, yeah. not so much oh, this is the nature of things, as these are all bad, Yeah, it's, wrong. Li it's literally organised. So you've got to imagine there are all of the different chapters and they're literally structured around lists of defects. So things which are wrong with the way... So the chapter on the column, where, where conventionally it would sort of tell you what the rules are for how you do one, is instead like a list of five things which it's possible to do wrong with the column and also many of the buildings in which they've occurred. What we didn't say is that this, by the way, it was a Patreon request, this episode. Ah, yeah, we didn't say that. So the primitive art, yeah, it's a kind of, it's a sort of a thought experiment um, and it's something which has, which does have a history. Uh, and we're going to talk about it particularly between the 18th and 19th centuries. Yes. And it's something which has... Uh, yeah, we've I been, think we've got to say we're cheating. We've drawn we quite are. a lot on this Rickford book. It's, 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 it's called The Idea of the Primitive Hearted Architectural History. It's the second title. Yeah. And, uh, he's we've a very, very clever guy. He's read a lot of books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, most of what he's written in here we're not talking about at all. So uh, kind of across history, in, in, this, in the initial sort of incarnation uh, of the Primitive Heart that we're going to look at, uh, it's a way of talking about style. And it's kind of, it feels sort of like style wars by proxy, kind of the, the idea of the primitive heart. It's kind of establishing a kind of uh, a, a sort of basis for stylistic arguments. Um, it is style, but I would say it's not quite style in the very easygoing Beaux-Arts sense of dressing. So if we think of style in the context of, if we were talking about style in 1900, yeah. it would be something which is, not utterly values free but is perhaps not like based on morals and also perhaps doesn't tell you necessarily fundamentally how the building should stand up yeah whereas this model of the primitive heart is really trying to define a lot of the errors are the building should stand up well in this case on columns on columns yes it should be supported on columns and the walls should be like curtains and it aesthetically should only really be driven by the column and the kind of triangle on top of the column. It is stylistic and is and he uses it to make lots of analysis of style, but that's driven by uh, a particular sense of what makes a building virtuous, mm -hmm. the reasoning of which is never really explained, but... I think for him, it's more than just, Yes, well, he this is what looks best. No, no. He says that um, an artist and also an architect um, should be, ought to be able to give a reason for everything, that he, everything he does. And he talks about that there are lots of books which teach you how to draw the orders. But uh, he's trying to provide something much more fundamental, which is like why things are the way they are the kind of the reason below all of the no all of the norms and all of the kind of uh, kind of uh, traditions and proprieties and forms and things like this that for uh, he he argues not an artist himself that an artist ought to be able to say ought to be able to have like a kind of conceptual foundation for uh, and in a way that's his first radical step yeah absolutely that you should you should, in a Enlightenment way, be able, like perhaps Newton, yeah. to be able to extrapolate the reasons for your artistic judgment from the fundamental axiomatic properties of the universe without just recourse to authority, except he sort of doesn't very satisfactorily do that. I think the most famous of Logier's rules is against pilasters. So this is kind of the most obvious one to understand. Uh, so we're going to look at, we're going to play a little game called "What's Wrong with This Building?" as we go through. Why, the, is, as this, we, why is this building <laughs> terrible? Because these these are all buildings which he calls out and says are. Uh, we should have put in one uh, that he liked. 
Uh, well, we did. That was the that yeah, was that's the true. One. That's true. That Maison Carré was, was, yes. was one. So this one here is the Church of Saint Gervais Saint Prote. We're looking at the. There's quite a lot of crit- criticism of church facades and then other kinds of facades. I mean, really, all facades. But he has this rule that. Uh, so he's he's he's. Uh, you can probably guess what's wrong with this one. Do we need to zoom it in at all? Or can we I mean, the... there's actually several things wrong with it. Yeah. But I think here he particularly focuses on the columns yeah. that you can see on are the... not supporting the building yeah well in this case he particularly criticizes the ground story so he quite i think enjoys the fact that on the first floor the ionic columns are semi-detached and look round but the ground floor ones are like only half you know they're like round pilasters which are attached to the round attached columns or whatever the whatever the terminology is and he says yeah does anyone believe that it would, wouldn't it be better if they were all detached as the ones on the upper story were? The funny thing is, he like as soon as he he kind of lays out what's good at the beginning, a lot of which is couched in sort of fundamentals, like the column should be the thing that supports everything. Yeah. And then immediately he's kind of fine with the wall supporting things as long as the column go, is sort of separate from it. Yeah, and the reason why columns have to be columns and not like attached columns or pilasters is that they should be like the original trees. Yes, the primitive but, the, 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 but, but part of that is like they should actually take yeah. the weight. They should, yes, yeah. Although he doesn't really understand how any of that works, so that's all like a lot woollier. But we should, we should have the, the, the kind of the echo of those original tree trunks in the columns and anything else is... Uh, oh, well, we could do another one. So here's, uh, here's another facade. This is... Uh, but I mean, if you go back to Maison Carré... Yeah. Well, that's kind of a thing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if he's looked if at the look size at, of this building. If you look at the size of this building, <laughs> yeah, it's it's they're the same as the ones at the bottom there. They're half attached. Yeah, he doesn't. Uh, he glosses over that. He um, says he says <laughs> in his book that they should they could should be no more than one quarter stuck in the wall. Yeah, which is. A weird thing to say, in my opinion, but there we go. What is a monstrous and insupportable defect in uh, the facade of this uh, church, I guess, built in the previous century? I think is, according to his rules, I can see so many, because <laughs> his rules are very strict. Yeah. Um, wh- which is the one he's particularly complaining about? This is this just a- attached columns again, actually. He just has a funny oh. way of saying it. Yeah. I have often groaned at the madness of some architects for the attached columns. I should never have thought that it could enter into the mind of man to engage columns one in another. There is not a more monstrous and insupportable defect. So, in fact, what it is is that the, um, these, there are some kind of Palladio-style, like, uh, superimposed. It's a superimposition of the orders in this one. Which yeah, particularly... I would have said, according to his rules also, like, even just dividing the stories is a bit of a problem. Yeah. He kind of likes a single entablature, and then... There should just be one roof line, which should be a triangle as well. You can see why the book might have made a bit of a, a bit of a splash because he doesn't hold back at all. He's extremely hyperbolic. He's completely categorical. <laughs> He's yeah. completely. He is not consistent in any way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's another one. Here's the Hotel de Soubise, which is in the Marais in Paris. It's sort of elegant two-story classical um, hotel particulier, and it's got a portico single-story portico on either side in a kind of um, symmetrical arrangement. What does he say is wrong with this one? This one, it's the portico. The portico is intolerable. And do you know why it is? Why? It's because you see these little columns are actually standing on pedestals. Oh, yes, yeah. the column. Well, it's a very small pitch you've got there. Yeah, yes. sorry. <laughs> he, he, the columns have to go all the way to the ground. Yeah. This is very important. Otherwise, they're not really like tree stumps. Yeah. You can't, for example, have a tree stump as you generally do in basic things on standing on a rock to stop the yeah. bottom of it rotting, that is an abomination. Hoisting columns upon pedestals, the columns being, if I may say so, the legs of the edifice, it is absurd to give them other legs. So you can't, you it's can't, a kind of monstrosity. Can't wear shoes, no. It's a monstrosity, yeah. By conventional standards, they're not very well-informed criticisms. No, they're not. A, um, I don't think anyone could accuse him of being extremely well <laughs> informed like about, looked at about building and how to do it. I think he'd looked a lot about buildings. What's I think he's an interesting character though because he's like um, he's a well-informed amateur. 
who's yeah, incredibly I mean, angry about architectural style, which I feel like... He it, doesn't, you, like, in his principles, you would think arches are a big no-no. Yeah. I mean, he's going to say that arches are a big no-no, but he doesn't seem to call them up very much. Yeah. Uh, arches and domes. Domes are an abomination. Yeah, domes. Uh, well, he says it's very regrettable, but I think that domes are impossible. <laughs> There's no way to do them. They're, I know. He's just terrible. <laughs> they're all terrible. You, he says you shouldn't do domes or arches. He says um, doors and windows and walls are architecturally irrelevant. Yeah. Yes. Which seems remarkable. <laughs> all architects agree that the void ought to be upon the void and the full upon the full. Now, do domes with an order of architecture always put before, before us the full upon the void. If they all have domes, let them execute them in another manner than they do. And then he says, no one knows what that would be, but it, the way that they do it now doesn't work. I do feel like this is the kind of ca character you encounter okay, in, so in, every, in everyday life as well, though. Like, yeah. you know, like people who have like a real bee in their um, bonnet about, and they've worked out... Cranks look, in high yeah. places. <laughs> yeah. Not... Gosh, one not might be... Unknown. One might be harmonic, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I do find him quite fun to read because the because he is so uh, kind of hyperbolic and emotional. And um, also, I think that the... trend the quite luscious as well. The, like, 18th century translation, actually, is, is quite very readable and, like, very colourful. I'll do one more. Do you know what else is banned? Niches. Oh. Niches, they, banned? they are banned. Hitherto, I've run through all the necessary parts of architecture, and I have not met a niche in my road. What, then, in effect, is a niche? For what use is it? In truth, I know none. I cannot believe that good sense can be pleased with looking on a statue placed in a window cut as a hollow tower. My antipathy to niches is invincible. Until they have shown me the principle and necessity of it, I shall lay violent hands upon all those who shall present them. He's, that's, that's very what he's like. He's prepared he to go so to... Much yeah. time. <laughs> like, I think we should talk about what he... A little bit more about what he thinks is a good building. Yeah. But, it, it, but doing that really... Like the notional architecture history survey course that you talk about, yeah, um, it will like that it rather elides what the book is like. As usual, yeah. well, the book is really a concatenation of grievous errors, which really are almost everything. Yeah, that you can put in a building. Windows are necessary but irrelevant. They should be square. Have to be square. They have to be square, yeah. but they are irrelevant. Yeah, they cannot add any beauty, nor can doors. Walls are just screens. Yeah. They should have nothing on them. Really, there is just columns and an entablature which really should only be expressed at the top of a building. Yeah. The column really should go from the top to the bottom and it should have a pediment on top, which yeah. is going all the way across. Yeah, it has to go all the way across. The and really everything else is defective. Defect defective and mon like kind and of monstrous. Monstrous. Monstrous, monstrous ruinous. <laughs> Grotesque. Yeah. Yeah, I can't help thinking that the kind of the innovation of the the primitive hut story is like powered out of uh, this rage. Like it's a kind of condensation. He's kind of he must have been going round and round in his head. Like the starting point for this book must be lots of things that he thought were ugly. You wouldn't have started. He wouldn't have like a yeah. first thought of this like thought experiment. The thought experiment must come at the end as a way of kind of rationalizing and kind of working through what he thinks is really going on in you know it's the product of his sort of reflection I on think his for own him, the whole world is just it's just he looks around and he sees nothing but paintings hanging at an angle yes <laughs> yeah no the it's entire a... world is like everything he sees everything is like his, his detector for paintings hanging at an angle is yeah. set to encompass everything yeah he just looks around and it's more and more willful willful in rectitude <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think that this is an influential idea and an influential book. Like, Primitive Huts, from this point on, will pop up again and again and again in uh, Yeah, and in, in a different way, architectural we will mention ways in which they kind yeah. of... Obviously, we've always had the idea of Primitive Huts as in people live in basic shelters yeah. that they build. But the idea of this is a kind of origin from which everything should be... From which, essentially, every deviation is an error. Yeah. Um, all you can do is kind of make it in firmer materials and bigger. Yeah. I did, um, I was having some fun on Photoshop. So, so he does talk about, I think he talks about Claude Perrault's, is it the East Front to the Louvre or the West Front? I can't remember. Anyway, this um, 
this facade, which is kind of famous, like uh, early neoclassical facade, very, very stripped back with these little, um, this sort of open portico on the first story, uh, these little paired columns, extremely it's like very, minimal. It's very long. Yeah. There's a little pediment in the middle and it's a big marching on the first story row of columns on the ground story windows with lots of rustication, but it's, yeah. it's plain. It's, very severe to linear yeah. and it's kind of like a row of soldiers you know yeah yeah and grand in scale yeah so in many ways you'd think austere yes columns very proper very proper i think the rules in, with regard to entablatures have been observed but he does say it's a great shame that in the middle they made this portico where the columns are attached rather than having them just detached all the way down he would prefer if it looked like uh, I've updated the Photoshop to look more like his preference. Although there is still an issue, which is that the uh, pediment is still only in the middle of the building when he says that, properly speaking, a pediment should always be the full width of the building. So this is now a building. This is the much improved version. And it's got a little block on either end. It's got a long row of columns marching and an enormous pediment on top. I mean, I think it looks interesting. I think the tourists would like it more. I think it's a little bit kind of undemonstrative. For I'm not it, yeah. Kind of popular I'm not taste. But yeah, this is this is for all its like incredible like crankiness um, and uh, barely suppressed sort of rage. <laughs> uh, this is you know uh, this is a very influential book and lots of people really liked it. Um, his big um, architectural inheritor is said to be Soufflot, who did um, Saint Genevieve, the Panthe the church that's now the Pantheon in. Uh, Paris, which does indeed have all of these detached columns all around the inside. Um, and if you look on the facade, no pilasters, mm. but there is a structural wall. Yeah. Defect. They did have, they had to, I'm not quite sure. And there are some really gross defects. Well, it was falling down. They had to it's add got some. A dome. Oh, there was the dome, yeah. An abomination. <laughs> It's not an abomination. It's Abom sadly impossible. It's, ab it's, abomination. <laughs> it's not an abomination. An abomin abomin niches are an abomination. I think the dome is just like an error. Yeah. It's an error, and people need to acknowledge that it's impossible. What about an apse? Uh, oh, I don't know. We it's don't really get, like we don't get niche, onto that. It? You don't really get onto that. It's very interesting for a, oh, for, for a book by a he church. Never goes, he never goes inside. Yeah. For There's no discussion of what goes on inside buildings at all. For a book by a churchman, also has very little. He talks a lot about church facades, but not at all about what, yeah. the, what the inside might actually be for, or, also, or how he might want it to be. How he's like primitive man. It's in a wonderful, wonderful setting. Yeah, but he also clearly has fallen. I mean, he's not in the Garden of Eden. He's not in the Garden of Eden. There's, no, there's vapors meeting by c coming into confluence and raining on him. Yeah, but, yes, but everything is verdant and lush. Yeah, the rain is... Uh, He's without labours. The rain is significant. There's a nice quotation which um, Rickford pulls out from Filaretti's book on architecture, where he says, it must be believed that when Adam was driven out of paradise, it was raining. It's a sort of starting point. Must it? We, must, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm very willing to take that as a... Yeah. Uh, um, and it's... I don't know. I think it's, it's kind of helpful also to talk a little bit about because the idea of like the first building is not something which was originated in Logier, but it's kind of given a completely different spin. You know, in Vitruvius, he does talk about uh, what the first buildings were like, but there's no sense in them that they give a model for what later buildings ought to be like. He has a sort of story about how kind of humans uh, started off. First of all, they didn't have buildings and they probably all were kind of like huddled up around a fire. Oh no, they were huddled up together and then the lightning came and made a fire by striking the trees, or the trees rubbed together and made a fire. And then they were probably really frightened at first and ran away. And then they came back and realized that the fire was good and kind of huddled around it. And then they sort of started to make things. And then the, the buildings which are described are like a bit like a big cone, or they're big, like things made out of mud and logs. And he says and they are we they are quite informed by what basic dwellings were, because there were a lot of them around. Yeah. You know, it's it's like you build a sort of wood skeleton, possibly of quite substantial logs, and yeah. then you seal it with clay. And there, yeah, and he says there are houses which are still like this in, I think, Crimea or the north of Turkey, the bit where the. Yeah, Pontus. Were. Pontus, yeah. Um, Trebizonia. Yeah. 
but there's no sense. And then it's like, oh, and then later on they worked out a build a bit better and kind of got better and better at it. Yeah. But there's a, it's a story about progress. It's not a story about the fundamental kind of model that's set by the first yeah, building. Yeah, I think in a way we're probably not going to concentrate. There are, there are different uses for people talking about the first building. You've got Logier type ones. Yeah. And they are, the first building was like this, and so everything else should be. Yeah. And there are other examples of that. There are people like Vitruvius... And in a way, Semper, who we'll probably mention later, and other people are also in that category, which is kind of using it... Buildings kind of came out of this and have evolved through these steps, one thing onto another, and that's how we got with what we are today. And that yeah. doesn't mean that we should build the first building again. Yeah. It kind of means that this is just what... This is a descriptive theory of this how is, the yeah. architectural history yeah. is. And then there's a sort of third category of people who are like... Everything was developing well. Yeah. We had progress. Yeah. And then... Something happened. There was perversion. Yeah. Deviation from... We stepped off the, the straight and narrow onto yeah. the thorny and wrong. Yeah. And there's lots of points in history when that might have happened. And, yes. Uh, uh, but, you know, I would... You know, Pugin would think that. It sort of demonstrates the, the, what's different about Logier's view of primitive hut. And how peculiar it is, the idea that... Well, his, uh, yeah. the, his primitive heart is all structure. It's all structure and it's all... Yeah, it's all kind of... I mean, yeah, it's all form. It doesn't have... His primitive heart has no walls. No. It's posts. It's got a roof. And it's posts, rafters, lintels, and then the roof is kind of just bits of the rafters. Yeah. Um, in a way, it's a prefiguring of like people like Semper, who you'd think are yeah. oh, like like the opposite. The, uh, you know, big brain, big thinker. He kind of has the origin of the structural frame as being separate to the origin yeah. of the kind of skin and has the yeah. conceptual separation of the things. Um, but in Logier, and I think part of, he can seem so naive because he's so early on in the beginning of the idea of this is something you should talk about. Yeah, it's also, there are different aims. So we can, I think we can talk as kind of on the one hand, on the other hand. So in, the, in Logier, and I think for the architects of that kind of period, the point of the primitive heart is to locate the starting point of a universal architecture. And then for architects in the 19th century, it's really something different. It's about originating an architectural, a theory of architectural development and an arch architectural change. So yeah. it's a point. It's a point where things started from, and certain kind of structural things about the way things are maybe are baked in at that point. Like, the, like yes, Gottfried Semper has this I this idea of there being these different elements of architecture. There's sort of frame. There's kind of earthwork. There are these kind of screens, etc., which which like originate in these much earlier technologies and kind of we're not going to talk properly materials. about Semper because we might do them some other time later and yeah i certainly haven't wrapped my head around quite yeah because he's saying he never doesn't base his architectural ideas off what the primitive hut is like no he and he doesn't he doesn't theory really, yeah. of architecture which and then that's just which yeah. includes the description of how things came into being yeah he doesn't he never proposes exactly what it's like yeah he doesn't think people. we should build them anymore no no absolutely not but then neither do neither do some other people i wanted to do there's there's also this because <laughs> well, it's an extremely strange idea yeah sure <laughs> one of the things which i thought we could just uh, like do a little digression there's this real uh uh eccentric unearthed in the Rick this is Bert someone book. who just rick Burt's. rick Burt found this person yeah and, I, uh is clearly yeah. very happy with it because it's such a. I mean, it is idea. totally like wild discovery. This so this is a guy called Sir James Hall, who like Logier is not an architect. In this case, he's a geologist writing around 1790, and he uh, went on the Grand Tour, and then and saw and was very impressed. I think by all of these kind of French Gothic cathedrals. That this is such way. a scientist. Like <laughs> geologist at that time is like the cutting edge science that's gonna yeah. for the next. 30 years make the breakthroughs that like you know define yeah public intellectual understanding of science and this is such a like uh astrophysicist does culture 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've worked it out. Yeah, <laughs> I've he's, solved it. What he's worked out in this case is that jo- that Gothic architecture originates not as historians have thought in the Romanesque, but rather in uh, kind of like wickerwork and wooden baskets. Arch- yeah, lost kind of massive basket architecture, which he, he uh, apparently he sort of describes. Um, this moment where he sees some people doing some work on some vines or something like they're that. They're bringing in. They're bringing the vintage, and he um he realizes this must be where it all came from, and uh, he like baskets, sticks, yeah. woven together vines. Yeah, and he does his best to kind of draw out exactly why this might be true. So we're looking at a couple of images here. There's this this one. He has an image of uh, a kind of gothic window, and we have the kind of stone one that we're familiar with, and then on the left of it. He has this one where the whole wall is made of this like radiating basket work and um, the stone like mullions are made of like more or less kind of worked roundwood timber, which has been sort of split and kind of trained. Yeah, and it's still got bits of like leaves growing on it, which yeah. are the kind of like twiddly bits of tracery. Yeah. And it's been, and in order to stop it wobbling, it's been split in half, pulled oh. apart, and then two bits have been mapped together to make yeah. the top of a Gothic window. Yeah. I think he did the drawings himself like with his geology skills yeah they're beautiful drawings and, and he got he got he got a, a, a swarthy mechanical to um make some things out of live timber for him oh uh, yes and was like and look at my discovery yeah. it 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 the bark fell off in just the right place to make <laughs> this detail and, and the, uh, there was a little sprig of foliage just yeah. at the base where you get those funny nodgly things on a yeah gothic spire so the structural elements make some sense. So, I mean, and the metaphor of the tree exists a lot in Gothic architecture, right? The columns, the fan vault, it's like the spreading yeah. branches of a tree. Yeah. Where it becomes interesting for me is the fact that all the walls are made of basket. Basket. No, because the walls are very active in Gothic buildings. All yeah. kinds of things are going on with them structurally. And if you look at the way that they kind of develop... You have like, it's not like wattle and door basket where, you know, it's quite common vernacular building technique that you will have some sort of frame and then you'll fill in the frame with sticks, weave sticks together and then use that like laugh and plaster, sort of plaster it to keep. No, this is just, it's just like a, a basket that's been left like a basket. Um, Rickford I mean, does what, most. What I don't think he understands is metaphors. Like lots of things are in the Gothic are representations of nature. Yeah. Nature exists inside churches because, you know, the church nature's what god created and um all he doesn't understand is that they can look like trees because people have made them and natural forms because people have made them into natural forms because they are interested in the representation of natural forms not yeah. because they literally made them out of natural forms and then when they turned it into making it out of stone slavishly copied those it's oh. also if your like way of receiving buildings is like purely aesthetic as well that's the other kind of necessary component to have for this misapprehension you have to not understand... Well, you have to understand nothing about history and also nothing about, like, structure. But um, if you're a geologist, you're very used to things transmuting material. Yes. Um, what the Gothic is, is fossilised baskets. Yeah. Like, Rickver does find someone who, who read this as well. He managed to unearth... I think it's Friedrich Schlegel, who's a German art historian, and who says... Who just says, I'm sorry, but this is completely untrue. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, it is... <laughs> Uh, we'll definitely put these on the Instagram. They're like amazing pictures. And kind of bringing the sort of 18th century sweep to an end, I've just got this nice picture from William Chambers's book, which I'm not going to talk about at all, but it's sort of, I feel like what his account of the primitive hut does is to kind of put it in its place. Uh, in his version, people started off making these kind of conical houses, and then they realized that square houses were better. And then, so there's this sort of sequence of uh, six or so little images on the, a single page, which basically represent everything that you might need to know about the like deep history of architecture and where it comes from. So there's like a conical wigwam house. There is a like square rationalization of that. There's one which is a bit more developed, where it started to develop. It looks like a little bit more like a tiny little temple. It's got a pointy roof, and it's got things which look more like a kind of entablatures and things. And then there's one thing which is missing, which is uh, the story of the Corinthian order and where it comes from, which is this story about what's the, who's the sculptor? It's uh, well, it's for the 
Temple of Apollo at Bassae up in northern yeah. Greece, and it's someone sees it's Callimachus. A, Callimachus sees a funerary urn surrounded by acanthus leaves, and that's yeah. like that's like half of architectural history yeah. up to recorded. That's half of architectural prehistory in the chambers, and this has got a lot of. If you yeah. look at the images. After the kind of wigwam covered in mud, they are immediately temples. Yeah, there's a temple, and then there's two bits which don't have a picture, which is like, and then a guy called Dorus built a, a temple, and that gave us the Doric, and then uh, they built one for in Ionia, <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then then there's one more thing missing, which was this thing. He says it's a basket. Apparently, it was mm. a basket left upon the tomb of a young girl in Corinth. And all of these leaves grew. Which is a story straight from Petruchius. Yeah, and that's it. That's the, but that's kind of sort of systematized. And then you can go straight on to the rules. The interesting thing about his primitive huts is there's only one hut. The rest of them, like you might call them huts, but they're all temples. They've all got, and the structure on them, although it's wood, you can kind of put the lie to this wooden origin of Doric because it's just, even if you, you know, so if you go to like Japan, where they've got massive wooden temples with huge, wooden columns yeah and they don't they're not scared of having the biggest wooden columns you can imagine even there the density of wooden column is that much less because you just don't need if you're building it out of wood you don't need like a quarter of your wall to be no. massive tree trunks no um vertically good for keeping that the heat in if you're is in very yeah. stony so it's definitely uh there's a telos we're going toward what that is is a story of I'm not going to think about this too much. I'm just going to draw a straight line from Mud Hut to Corinthian Temple. Yeah. And, and once you got there, we've got all, everything. Everything, yeah. Yeah. And really, I'm not going to fill in the gaps very much at all. Yeah. Oh, and then there is one... Which I guess is like the, the kind of architectural prejudice of what... Yeah. Of, of, of people... Yeah, that of, that, of that kind of... Uh, of that architectural style. There is one revisionist idea which is uh, by a guy called Villa Panda, which is that the Corinthian order actually came from the Temple of Solomon. Cool, of yeah. <laughs> uh, which I don't know what his basis is for thinking that, but that is, uh, that's an argument. And there's a whole, there's a whole kind of like um, subplot in this book about the Temple of Solomon and uh, yeah. like people, well, people trying an, to work out what that looks like. There is an interesting like. description of it, which is very... So, you know, the description of the tabernacle lot, lot of is unbelievably saying, yeah. detailed and boring. Um, but the Temple of Solomon has it's got lots of things we don't want to talk about. Temple of Solomon could be some other time. Yeah, we'll do that another time. I, the, it produces uh, some really memorably weird images, people's attempts to <laughs> reconstruct what it looks like. It's yeah. like, you know, long ago we looked at Pliny's villas and people's reconstructions of them, which are sometimes quite eccentric, but the reconstructions of the Temple of Solomon look like insane. Or often <laughs> like exactly what that architect just happened to be doing that yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. But really big. So the, the other person I wanted to talk about was is um Viole Le Duc, who wrote a book called well, so who's like a eighteenth a 19th century French architect, primarily known as a restorer of Gothic buildings, and also as like a, a very prolific writer and drawer. If you're looking at quite a few um French Gothic buildings. They're actually not medieval. They're Victorian. Rebuilt, by, rebuilt <laughs> by this guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, he did. I mean, he got an awful lot done in that sphere, possibly not all of it to the good. And but, and he also did these, like, enormous, like, he, uh, you know, books. Like, he has this enormous description of all of medieval architecture in France, all of which are... Illust- he's a great kind of illustrator of his own books as well, and he has these very kind of lively little sketchy drawings of different things i would say in, in intellectual climates the previous lot of people were talking about we're really beginning to talk about the origin of styles yeah so, I, so w- I would make a contrast between the people who've talked previously who are 18th century figures yeah the primitive heart is about the origin of a universal architecture and um for, for him is first of all there are lots of them and they kind of arise in different climates it's like a a justification of like nas- national style, I would say. Yeah. So before, um, I would say there's the origin of styles, as in we've got the origin of classical architecture, the origin of Gothic architecture, which are kind of styles which were the styles for everywhere that people thought about. 
yeah. in the 18th century. And then going in the, even in the early 19th century, people are beginning to, they've already dug up quite a lot of, you know, stuff's come back from Egypt in the mm. Napoleonic period. And we're beginning to get a more global perspective and people are beginning to sort of think anthropologically. And then instead of just being styles, because obviously the same people are doing classical architecture and Gothic architecture, we have kind of anthrop like world anthropology origins of like different styles come from different human cultures so this is a book this book is sort of global in scope he talks about south america and he talks about china very racist uh, it's very racist and i think we'll get into the specific <laughs> it has some weird racial theories which are sort of essential to understand what he's on about but which i think is better to i mean they're not they're not hit the rate the architectural theories i would say are broadly his the racial theories um i think he's just found with, he's were found kind of lying around yeah right? they're sort of in alignment we'll get we'll get on to them the sort of story that he wants to tell so the book is called the habitations of man in all ages i think it's designed probably for like an audience of teenage boys and it's basically like a big story about the whole history of humankind told through their dwelling places and which form a kind of linear progress from the primitive huts first inhabitation through to kind of ever more like developed forms of life and places to live so the book is told through these two characters who are like eternal spirits who are always kind of in the story and talking to people called epergos and doxios who represent respectively progress and conservatism yes and conservatism and progress is action yeah and kind of aggressive yeah and conservatism is dreaming and tradition and yeah. it's tradition but also imagination and that sort of thing yeah and um the what happens broadly like um they're kind of active participants and the breakthroughs in architecture generally occur at the instigation of epergos the progress the progress spirit so in this first chapter where he talks about his version of the primitive hut, we've got this sort of description of these. The chapter is called, Are They Men? Question mark. And they're um, described as these like hairy, sallow kind of man monkeys who eat snakes and they all kind of lie in a big heap together. And then at a certain point, these spirits come down and talk to them. And Epergos gives them the, um, so they originally live next to this big tree, but Epergos gives them the uh, insight to kind of lean all these sort of small trees together and tie them together at the top and fill in the gaps to make this big kind of conical house which um, protects them from the rain. And, and then the spirits go away and then they'll come back again. But the, um, Whenever we describe bits in this book, you have to fill in all the colourful racial stereotyping. I think that we should explain his idea of progress and then we can talk about how it, it intersects with his like esoteric uh, racial theories. The, the idea of architectural progress is that people need to update their architecture in line with their kind of technological capacities and with the, with the context, the kind of physical context that they find themselves in and the resources that they can draw on. Early on, there's this moment where um, the, there's this kind of tribe that he's talking to uh, who have, they have their kind of house, which is sort of like a big log cabin, and at a certain point, at Epergos's instigation, they rebuild the wooden log cabin in stone with these big stone walls at the cost of it taking a lot longer, but getting to a better building in the end. The lesson of it is that progress kind of comes about through the willingness to throw away past models and to kind of to take things to take kind of the lessons which are available from what's existing, but also to sort of move forward boldly into the possibilities yeah, of technology. Yeah, is a traditionalist, but he believes that as time goes on, like technologies and cultures change, and that and that the like um, Aryan master race that he has going through <laughs> the book, yeah. his particular superpower is their ability to synthesize like two pre-existing either uh, like, like a cultural norm and a new technology or to get two cultural things these people have got windows these people have got walls what if we put windows in walls yeah the kind of genius is the ability to kind of s synthesize existing things that come up naturally 
to get which on is to, undertaken by Arians. Yeah, to get onto the race, the race thing. He's so yeah. The the kind of agents of architectural progress throughout history are the Arians who um, originate in the Himalayas, and we kind of meet them in their earliest, in their kind of uh, kind of earliest state, living in the Himalayas, and who then sort of fan out all over the world kind of live in different sorts of climates and accommodate themselves to those climates, whether it's building kind of a tent or a different kind of house or whatever, and they take over and dominate the peoples that they find there. They take from them, you know, anything which can be taken from their architecture, and then they also kind of move everything forward through their indomitable will. And I mean, one of the things is that all of the chapters have these, like, uh, certainly early on, have these, these little kind of facial studies at the end, these like little racist uh, kind of caricatures. So we're showing um, on the screen this kind of Neanderthal guy living in the, in the, in the tree house and then this uh, early Aryan um, looking very um, He's got a good Eastern beard. Yeah. He's <laughs> uh, got sort of anime eyes. He his eyebrows. Yeah. He's got a, a good straight nose. So, so to, I mean, to continue on that theme, so, you know, he, we do also, we encounter people in China, for example, and the thing about... Um, very diligent, very diligent. No imagination. Yeah, the thing about China is it's very sophisticated in his telling, like, oh. it's very sophisticated, <laughs> but it is incapable of progress. Yeah. The people cannot move forward. The terrible thing is, I have still heard these uh, uh, attitudes occasionally from the older generation. Yeah, they are around today. I think that just they, about. I think that this was. Uh, yeah, I don't think that he was saying something which was particularly wild or out there for the time. I think that this uh, was believed by many Europeans about themselves. That, uh, yeah. Yes, that they were kind of uniquely capable of moving history forward, and uh, that everyone else was uh, stuck in a kind of eternal present, like a goldfish. The other peoples of the world. What he likes doing are these little these little studies of all of these different and houses, they, which are rather fascinating and like very very imaginative. And the interesting thing is, you know, with the Chinese example, for example, we and he would have had a pretty good idea of what Chinese dwellings are like, and it's not like that's exactly what he draws. And then he has some which are broadly, which tend to be the Aryan dwellings are broadly made up out of whole cloth. Early on, yeah. I would say the first half of the book, at least, is completely imaginative. And then yeah. maybe in the second half, the, you know, he has some bits on kind of Assyrian houses and he has some bits on Egypt and things where I would say there is some archaeological evidence yeah. for what he's talking about. But the earlier stuff, yeah, it's largely invented. And they're quite fun little inventions. Yeah, they're very creative little inventions. In a way, some of the earlier ones are better houses. <laughs> yeah, because they've got that like 19th because century... Because they're 19th century... <laughs> they're like 19th century eclectic of architecture. <laughs> Whereas he has to make out that obviously the like Assyrians and the Egyptians are still sort of rubbish. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we do, we get into real, like, we get into, like, real race science. It was interesting also is that, like, Doxios, Epergos, the uh, prog progress spirit, is the race scientist. Yeah. He is the one who's always talking about them. He's saying, you know, my friend, I think this proves that, the, uh, in fact, the Assyrians were uh, joined by a stream of Aryan. Um, yeah, whereas Doxios is the romantic, and who's the... Reactionary. Yeah, Doxius says like people are different all over the world, and we should just let them be. We however, let them be. let them be how they want. And who's to say which way is better than any other way? And I, idiots. I, yeah, it's, this is like yeah, that's uh, no, that's the, uh, that's against progress. We've got yep. to get rid of that kind of thinking. The uh, the the kind of progressive inclination is is uh, is towards yeah, like kind of racial profiling and identifying eugenics. Eugenics. Yeah, he is. So we get eventually we get to the Greeks, uh, who are Aryans, obviously, uh, and um, we get these rather charming. Uh, there's some really I love these like these kind of like early wooden versions of um, Greek houses, which all look like temples. You know? They've got lots of like good Victorian scholarship, 19th century scholarship. You know, they're highly decorated. I suspect if that was a color plate, it'd be very colorful. Yeah. They know um, they know and about. everything is very luxurious. Yeah. The quality of the illustrations is high. Yeah. Because of where it's coming from. Yeah. 
And also, people were not frightened to put pen to paper then. Nowadays, people are frightened to be kind of wrong if they're <laughs> yeah. doing a historic reconstruction, which means the reconstructions are... Also, they're also nowadays done on computers, yeah. which means that everything is empty and clean. Yeah. Um, there are no people. No. Uh, things have matte textures. Yeah. Um, no, whereas here, there's lots of people skulking. And there's tons of detail. Yeah. And things are really drawn out. I think people should sometimes put st something out there at the expense that that's their best effort at the expense that they might be proved wrong subsequently. Yeah. Um, rather than just not bothering to say anything at all. Yeah, no, I'm, I agree. Because if you put the thing out there, you might work out what's wrong with it. And that might give you an inclination as to what is right. Yeah. But something terrible happens. It happens after the Gothic. Yeah. So, um, Violet, like, a, um, like other people that we've talked about, thought that history in fact had gone wrong at a certain point was in the Renaissance. So he shares with Ruskin the view that the Renaissance was a wrong turn in architectural history. And for him, it's kind of self-evidently a wrong turn according to his rules, because it's a moment where people start, because it's kind of retrograde. It's like looking back for no good reason to the architecture of the past and trying to ape the forms of the architecture of the past rather than inhabiting yeah. the present and the possibilities of the present as the Gothic had done and as he felt, a kind of architecture of now had to and do. And in a way, that's why I was thinking about his cast iron sci-fi gothic. Because yeah. what you should do is splice back to the time of the last good bit of architecture. Yeah. And then synthesize it with the technology of today, which yeah. means gothic steampunk. Yeah. I have. I haven't put them in. The, we should. We'll uh, add some in post. They. They are like amazing images. There's that sort of weird, like cross braced. Someone did a couple of things yeah. like that. There's yeah. a couple in Paris. Yeah. There's sort one of small little things. Yeah. These kind of like uh, sort of big kind of undercrofts under these. Yeah. These yeah. Sort of cyclo cyclopean scaled bits of cast iron. Um, but all in like twiddly detail as well. Yeah. Lots of twiddly. Lots of like massive ball joints and like twiddly detail. It's a bit like sort of style transfer onto high-tech architecture, if you'd like. Yeah. Redid Heathrow Terminal 5 in uh, the style of... Um, yeah, or redid... St. Pancras Station. But sort of, instead of doing St. Pancras Station the way they did it, which is a gothic front and a tram shed, if you took yeah. the gothic front off, but suddenly made it... Suddenly made all of the kind of detailing... The expressive engineering should be as high-tech as you can make it. Yeah. But but it should sort of all be gothic at the same time. Yeah. Shame this is so racist, this book. I think it is an interesting sort of window into a particular moment in intellectual history where actually these kind of attitudes were basically like mainstream progressive thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, I feel that's really underrepresented in the way we talk about figures yeah. from the 19th century because... Uh, academics and popularizers don't like saying all the racist things that people used to say. Yeah. And so they don't cover that bit as much. Yeah. But they're yeah, very but abundant. I think that the fact that, like, I think that people wrongly think that the bad attitudes were particularly concentrated in people who were, for the time, uh, conservative, which is not necessarily the case. Like, the kind of form... Not, the oh, form, I yeah. would say essentially no... Yeah. A lot of eugenicists were left-wing eugenicists. No, I think like eugenics was uh was it's progressive. Was a progressive like for the time. Uh, like it was it was associated with people who were kind of progressive. I would like, say that a radical centrist dad would be a, a Yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, I think that we've kind of got to the end of that more or less. What do how shall we wrap it all up? One thing that we have uh, we are kind of cutting it off there and these ideas do go on and on and on, and we, it might be that we'll talk about um, how they reappear in uh, the work of people like Le Corbusier. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, briefly, he's very much of the, I'm going to say a couple of things about the primitive heart that's going to be like this, and that's why my architecture is like this, and all your yeah. architecture is wrong. Yeah, that's well, yeah, that's why what I'm doing is right. natu natural. Natural, yeah. and you're, what you're doing is ungodly and an abomination. Yeah, so sure, we're going to not talk about everything from the mid-19th century onwards, and I don't think it really went away. No. Or appeals to the original past didn't. We don't 
talk about huts very much anymore or if we do it is huts that are made by i think there came a time when anthropologists went out and looked at what folk architecture in yeah. various places that is basic yeah it's interesting so i my when we when i started doing the research for this my impression was i kind of knew that in the when you get to the international expositions for example you start getting tribal people being brought over to kind of live in a like demonstration village as yeah. part of that kind of thing. And I had kind of thought that maybe that was something which came along at the end, this kind of synthesis of anthropology and kind of things learnt during colonialism uh, with primitive hut theory, because obviously Logier's primitive hut is purely imaginative. But in fact, I think it's there all along. There's an interesting thing in um, Barbaro's Vitruvius, he talks, he like alludes to um, some of the things which people have written about dwellings in Hispaniola yeah. when uh, Columbus had been there and the, like thinking about that in the context of it. So we, I kind we, of. We were talking about uh, Logier in the context of Rousseau. You're not going to go. Yeah, like, so that's, but the, so that's like in, that's before any of this. That's in the 16th century. Yeah. So it feels like that has kind of been around, um, that's sort of always been in the background, the, 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 yes. uh, the reference. I guess but that if, but at that point, if people were appealing to the deep history of architecture, they would be referring to their architecture, our Western European architecture. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, I think it cha it does change, doesn't it? Because so in the in the nineteenth century, I, definitely people are. I'm pretty sure Loger imagined his person was European. Probably they were. Yeah. I mean, a universal ancestor, but a universal ancestor like him. He spoke French, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Spoke French, yeah. exactly. Um, um, uh, yes, like the the first ones, they knew people were doing other things elsewhere in the world, and yeah. that people were continuing to live in simple dwellings, but they were, they really were someone else, and they were kind of interested in the origin of architecture, yeah. which is not really something they considered those people of doing. And then after that, what I thought is, I was trying to think if anyone is using this sort of argument now or subsequent to the 70s. And so, the only well, yeah, you, you, no, go, you, you do your one and I'll, I've got one. Well, the only area that I think people are really, there aren't that many argument uh, areas in which people are really having substantial arguments about what we should do now. Mm. But it, it certainly does come up in the arguments about what to do about the energy problem in buildings, yes, which is very current. And there are different approaches to the future of that. You know, like, do we embrace a mechanical technological future, a lightweight um, Rainer Bannum mm. future? Or is, you know, which would be um, forced air heat reclamation lightweight structures whatever lots of plastic insulation or does the future look like a beautiful peasant house where we all yeah. um sit in home knitted jumpers uh in a enormously thick log cabin around a peat fire yeah each I, of which have fairly obvious internal contradictions well that would be my answer as well i think that there is if you think of the attention which is given uh, at the moment to um, like indigenous forms of life and uh, land practices and the, these sorts of things in the con the, like, the, the kind why of why were we taught I don't know if you were this much why were we taught about those like ventilating wind towers yeah did you get in the Middle East so much that thing came up again and again. it's like that is not a problem we encounter here um but they are like people. You people kind of offer them as this is uh, something. The lessons of which we need to learn in order to address the problem of man-made climate change. Like yeah. there are there are kind of books which out. Which you can do by if in London it's ever enormously too dry and hot, you can have a like stack effect chimney with a clay jar full of water at the top. They're kind of more than that. They're like those images of those. Uh, wonderful bridges that people make in um, in like tropical jungles where they're grown out of uh, kind of liana vines oh, woven yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah, okay, cool. I think that. I mean, I think they're wonderful. I mean, they're, they're like wonderful, but I'm not. 
the idea that they have like a like an obvious applicability to our form of life in the places that we I mean, live is like not really like clear to me. In my period when I was working for someone else doing houses, people would come to us and go, I want an eco house and it's going to have incredibly thick walls made of like hemp reinforced limecrete. Mm. And it's a sort of hippie meets vernacular low energy future. Well, that's all right, because that's, a, that's actually a viable way of constructing something, and it has something yeah. to be said for it. I think that the... Often, ele often ele it, often elements of it do, but elements of the thinking don't necessarily... Sure, but at least that's like a real building. I mean, I think that a lot of what I would think of as like the modern analogue of the primitive hut thinking now, which I would say is like indigenous ecology thinking, yeah. like the applicability of them, I, I just find completely imponderable i think they're like enormously interesting things in themselves but i can't understand how they could possibly have anything to say to us in the very particular predicament that we are in like advanced industrial societies producing too much carbon like there is yeah. just no way that they can speak that they can yeah, kind of I, teach I us mean, a lesson like it's it's like it struck me that anyway this is where it's living now yeah i um, think so too yeah and uh, and it has all the problems it's always had. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That the the the, <laughs> the conclusions are impossible, just like yeah. Logiers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, actually, like the engineering problems were nothing to the planning problems of making any of these things in either Cambridgeshire or London, which are the only two places I've. Oh well. Yeah. I've <laughs> had London in where essentially you cannot do. Build anything. Can't build anything. <laughs> no. Right. Well, maybe we'll leave it there. There are a lot of different episodes you could have done on this topic. This is a good book. Yeah. I would say it's not. Like we couldn't do an episode on this book. I thought about it. Yeah. There's too much in it, and it's because also it's not a work of architectural theory. We can discuss a work of architectural theory in the context of theory. This is a work of architectural historiography. Yeah. Which in a way is kind of what, which is a, it's kind of our job. I mean, his way of writing, if you've never read one of his books, like they're, I think of them as being like very essayistic. They're very elegant. They're full of lots of stuff. They often kind of double back on themselves. You may meet the same person multiple times. And like his form is to kind of cover the, is sort of thematically to cover the hut through these sort of several journeys which go through the history of it multiple times over and over and over again. And there's no way, there's no way that you can synthesize that. There in, isn't a theory. Yeah. He's not proposing no. anything. He's talking about different ways, different people he finds interesting selectively yeah. have spoken about this yeah. topic. But yeah. what you can do if you're interested in that is read it. Read it, yeah. It's a very available book. Yeah. It's good. Um, we should have an affiliate link or something. You can yes. probably bake about one pound. Why don't you buy it from your local bookshop? Yeah, that would be nice. So thanks very much for listening. Uh, this has been about buildings and cities. I don't know if we even introduced ourselves at the beginning probably of not. the programme. Uh, I'm I, still, was, <laughs> I was George Gingell. I was Luke Jones. And uh, remember, if, you, if this is by some strange chance the first time you're listening to the pod we've been doing it for a while uh we have a, a we, we have it's a lucky you can't see that we didn't have videos at the beginning because we yeah. look a lot older if you want even more than is available on the free feed there's a bonus feed which you can access through uh, paying us a little bit of money on patreon very good value um, uh, all the links to all kinds of supporting social media and things like that are available at aboutbuildingscities.org which is a website this episode will have been edited by Matthew Lloyd Roberts by the time it reaches you. Yeah. Um, you can now uh, rate things on Spotify. It takes one second because you can only give it a star rating. Oh, nice. If you're listening on Spotify, you just give press us a button and you can give us five stars. That'd yeah, be very nice please, of you. Please, That would be very nice. Don't if you're upset about one of the various many either errors or contentious things that we're saying. There's enough people doing that already. If it sounds <laughs> like we said something unacceptable, it was probably bad editing. Or, yeah, <laughs> my fault. <laughs> All right. Uh, Thank you very bye. much. Bye. Until next time. Good night.